welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. I'll again start by thanking all of you that support the show via Patreon. It really makes these conversations possible. And it's fantastic to see a growing community of researchers, students and practitioners support the show and find value in the episodes. And if you'd like to show your support for the podcast, you can pledge as little as £1 per episode by visiting patreon.com forward slash the words matter podcast and I've linked this in the show notes. So we're halfway into the qualitative research series, and to bring you up to date, episode one eased us in to qualitative research with Perry Tusselman. In episode two, we explored grounded theory with Professor Jane Mills and Professor Melanie Burks. In episode three, I spoke about ethnography with Dr. Fiona Webster. And in last week's episode, I spoke with Dr. Victoria Clark about thematic analysis. And if you haven't listened to them all, I strongly urge you to go back and catch up, as they're fantastic entrances to their respective topics. And there is also a little cross-referencing to previous and future episodes, which will give you a rounded view of the series as it unfolds. So the series is shaping up really nicely and I hope it will become a useful resource for those wanting to orientate themselves with qualitative research theories, methodologies, and methods. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Charlotte Aubrey about conversation analysis. Charlotte is a qualitative researcher that holds a Mildred Baxter Fellowship from the Foundation for the Sociology of Health and Illness and a Fulford Junior Research Fellowship at Somerville College at the University of Oxford. Charlotte has held multiple grants, including from the NIHR School for Primary Care Research and the British Heart Foundation. She is the course director for Oxford Qualitative Courses, which are expert-led practical short courses in qualitative methods, including conversation analysis, but also a range of other qualitative approaches. And this is a great programme and I've linked the course in the show notes. And Charlotte has led several research projects which use conversation analysis to identify how to optimise clinical communication, including her current work, which utilises conversation analysis to investigate COVID risk communication. So in this episode, we speak about conversation analysis, or CA, as a qualitative method to uncover the machinery and mechanics of social interaction. We briefly talk about the history of CA and its emergence from the US sociology scene in the 1960s. We talk about CA as a chimeric research methodology with features and assumptions which seem to align with quantitative or positivist research, such as notions of the discovery of truth, the somewhat detached objectivity of the researcher, quantifying aspects of the data, but also features which are familiar to qualitative research, such as the analysis of textual data 
such as transcripts, and the study of social interaction and phenomena. So a fascinating hybrid. We talk about the sorts of research questions that CA seeks to address, and we discuss how charlatans use CA to understand communication between patients and clinicians to uncover the different strategies and outcomes of talk, and I've linked Charlotte's PhD thesis and her papers in the show notes. We talk about the Jeffersonian system of transcription, which is very particular to CA, and we touch on some of the methods of data analysis once these transcriptions have been generated. And finally, Charlotte offers some advice for those considering embarking on a CA study or those just wanting to become more familiar with the methods. So this was such an insightful conversation about an area of qualitative research which was quite unfamiliar to me. Charlotte describes the purpose and methods of CA incredibly clearly, providing a real insight into how conversation analysis proceeds. The granular, almost reductionist detail of data analysis and the somewhat realist, objectivist notions of CA may initially not be your cup of tea if you're an interpretivist or a social constructionist. But hold your horses. The forensic attention that conversation analysis gives to the specific words, language and talk offers something valuable to all qualitative researchers who are interested in understanding and portraying human interactions and social processes. And I certainly learnt a great deal which I will take with me into my current and future qualitative projects. So I bring you Dr. Charlotte Aubrey. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for having me. So your work is especially interesting to me, given the name of this podcast, Words Matter, and given the expertise that you have in conversation analysis. So it's great for you to contribute to this qualitative series. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here and talk a little bit about conversation analysis, because I think we'll sort of, as, as we chat, we'll sort of realise it is this kind of wonderful method. And I feel quite underused in, in the social sciences. And it has so much to offer, particularly applied research in healthcare settings. I'm really excited to chat to you about it today and help lots of other people discover conversation analysis and how how useful it is, I guess, for, for applied healthcare research. So before we launch into, into that, Perhaps you can say a little bit about your background as a, I'm calling it a qualitative researcher because this is a qualitative <laughs> podcast. Do you, do you identify as a qualitative researcher? Yes, I do, definitely, yeah. as a yeah. qualitative methodologist, but primarily as a conversation analyst. And where's your current academic post? So I'm a Mildred Blackster Fellow in the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford, and also a Fulford Junior Research Fellow at Somerville College at the University of Oxford. And my role really is to apply conversation analysis to clinical interactions that focus on behaviour change. And in addition to my role as a Mildred Blackster Fellow, I'm also course director for Oxford Qualitative Courses, which also run from the Nuffield Department of Primary Care at the University of Oxford. Uh, and we run short courses in qualitative methods. I also teach qualitative research methods across the University of Oxford. I lead Oxford's in vivo courses and specialise in applying qualitative methods to behaviour change conversations. So perhaps you could say a little bit about your journey into qualitative research and into conversation analysis. 
Yeah, of course. So I trained in anthropology and medical anthropology at the University of Durham. Uh, and what was quite cool uh, and unique about the programme at the time is that we did both biological anthropology and sociocultural anthropology. So we'd spend sort of half of our time thinking about uh, the world and humans and how we create the world together. And the other half of the time sort of in the lab, looking at genetics and bones and skeletons wow. and things like that. <laughs> so it was a really exciting degree. And I really enjoyed both parts of it. But my favourite bits really were learning about narrative and storytelling and that was sort of my kind of entry into qualitative research to understand how as humans, the way that we narrate and storytell, we construct the world around us. So I did a, a master's in medical anthropology, specifically working on narrative and storytelling. Uh, and I did an ethnography at a spiritualist church, looking at how people who were chronically ill sought spirit healing and were also seeking uh, biomedical care alongside spirit healing. And the aim was to use ethnography, but also narrative approaches and some phenomenological approaches as well to better understand what was happening here at this, this spiritualist church. And it was really brilliant. I spent a lot of time there, got to know the people seeking spirit healing and the spirit healers. And what I began to notice was that the spirit healers themselves um, were all actually retired NHS nurses and they all wore these name badges and they did all these actions to try and make the spiritualist church much more like sort of an NHS setting than a spiritualist church. So they had big filing cabinets full of patient notes. They made each other wear these name badges. When people came in, they were sort of welcomed and chaperoned in the same way we'd, we'd see in the NHS. So I became more and more interested in the healers themselves and what was happening there. And there was one healer that really resisted this sort of NHS uh, kind of setting that they were creating at the church and would on purpose like not wear her name badge, not write the patient notes and behave in a in sort of a completely different way. And one day we were all standing in a circle and this healer had like not, not worn her name badge again. And one of the other healers sort of looked at me uh, and was like, oh, she's got a name badge again. And that healer who'd got a name badge winked at me and she was like, oh, whoopsie daisy, I'm so scatty, aren't I? Clearly resisting so obviously this, this way everyone else was trying to make her wear her name badge and create this NHS setting. And that wink was sort of the moment when I was like, well, I'm interested in narrative, but this wink just told me so much. And she didn't say anything. Uh, this wink sort of embodied all these things. I noticed these tensions around wearing name badges and patient notes. And she was sort of bringing me into her confidence with this one action. So I went away, uh, read about sort of winking, what it does in social interaction. <laughs> winking analysis. <laughs> yeah. And began to find out, you know what, narrative isn't the be all and end all of finding out about humans and interaction. And there's this whole thing called conversation analysis where we look at embodied action and all these different bits and pieces that we do when we interact with each other to create our social world and our interaction. And really, that was the moment when I thought, gosh, this is really awesome. What an amazing method. And I'd love to learn more. And the more I worked at this church, I would kind of make my field notes and go home every day and write them up and look at the literature. I then found a second sort of conversation analytic bit of literature that was so relevant to my work when I began to look at the mediums and psychics at the church and how they um, worked with the people after spirit healing. And Again, I scribbled my notes, went home, and I found this book called The Language of Mediums and Psychics by Robin Wiffett, who is a conversation analyst. And that was sort of my second taste. It came up twice in this, this one ethnography, mm -hmm. and that really clinched it for me. I was like, 
this is what I'm interested in. Narrative isn't the be all and end all. It's a wonderful thing to do, but I really think conversation analysis might be for me. And then from there, sort of sought to learn more about the analytic approach and find out more about how we can study communication and how it's a useful approach to take to answer very specific questions in healthcare research. What a wonderful story into CA. Yeah, well, thank you. I sort of always think we all have these sort of origin stories and they're, they're very personal, aren't they? Mm. I, I feel and I sort of remember those two key moments where I discovered that conversation analytic literature and it was just so different from anything I'd seen before. And I think because it was different, it was just incredibly interesting and offered an approach that was like no other method that I'd studied, even though we'd been taught a lot of different social research methods. And I think because of that difference and because it offered something that was just kind of the opposite of everything else I've been taught, it was just a very attractive approach to, to begin to understand better how communication works. And what's your and your current role as, as a researcher? Describe your... You, You've done some work, unsurprisingly, using conversation analysis, which is why you're here. But you've obviously completed a PhD using CA and published some papers off the back of that that work. So perhaps describe how you subsequently use conversation analysis to explore communication in healthcare amongst GPs. So, yeah, I've used conversation analysis in a number of different projects, a number of different studies. Um, but what they all have in common, really, is to find out how clinicians in varying settings give advice when that advice has not been solicited by the patient. And often that advice will be around behaviour change as well. And I'm interested in that because as clinicians, unsolicited advice is something that often it's necessary to give, but it can be quite uncomfortable. And it also is quite a high stakes thing because there's a high likelihood in many cases that patients might not take quite so well to receiving unsolicited advice. I'm not a clinician, but I am a patient and I've been on the receiving end of unsolicited advice and it can be very uncomfortable. Um, so that's really why I'm driven to find out how we can better deliver things like unsolicited advice uh, and how we work together to achieve advice giving in clinical settings. So I uh, mainly work on weight loss conversations in primary care, uh, but I've also worked on studies of smoking cessation discussions in primary care um, and on risk communication as well. So how CBD risk or cancer risk is communicated. And most recently, I'm leading a study that's funded by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office to find out how COVID risk can be communicated best to people about to travel, which is a very relevant thing. And I think a really useful example of when to use conversation analysis, because we just don't know how to communicate COVID risk. It's such a new thing. And the best way to find out how to do it is to listen to examples of clinicians actually communicating COVID risk, people receiving that unsolicited advice, negotiating together the conversation, what troubles come up, how clinicians and patients work together to overcome troubles and learn from those recordings of real interactions what works well in that particular interaction, maybe what works not quite so well. And if troubles do sort of bubble to the surface, how can they best be managed and handled by both parties to have a successful resolution to a conversation, essentially? So I think all of these things come together to illustrate that even though unsolicited advice can be tricky, if we analyse recordings of real interaction happening, we can really find out how it can be done well and effectively and in a patient-centred way, most importantly. Mm. And I think I'll, well, at this point, I'll signpost that I'll link 
for those that want to read a PhD thesis on conversation analysis, I'll, I'll link that. But probably more accessibly, I'll also link the papers that you published off the back of that about GP communication around weight loss, wasn't it? Yep. So these are really both the smoking cessation and the weight loss as a clinician myself. These are the kind of awkward conversations that we often clumsily stumble through um, with the best intentions of giving advice and wanting the patient to, to do well and to thrive and to be healthy. But so thinking about our good intentions as clinicians, what is it that is within our conversation, which we're doing badly or doing well, or what has conversation analysis told you about these, these conversations that clinicians are having? That's such a good point. And I guess it's never, I would say that no one ever communicates badly. But what we do with conversation analysis really is find those absolute brilliant examples where there's been something tricky and someone has just handled it in a in a way that maybe we never would have imagined and things have just run really smoothly. And often that can be very counterintuitive. And I think what you said about people meaning well and having the best intentions is so important because in most cases, when I listen to recordings of clinicians interacting with patients, clinicians will be following guidelines and doing their very best to do that, that guideline recommended communication. But where the tricky thing comes up is that guidelines on how to communicate are very rarely actually written by anyone who studied communication. And because of that, sometimes guideline recommended practices just don't work. And what does work well is actually very counterintuitive for clinicians. And I think a really neat is a neat example is from my work looking at weight loss discussions. So most of the recordings I listen to, clinicians are following nice guidelines and communicating in ways that they are recommended to communicate by training as well. But the problem with guidelines and training is that it is very rarely based in evidence of what effective mm. communication actually is. And that can cause problems in practice. So even though people are doing their best to follow guidelines and do everything the guidelines say will, will be good for patients, when it happens in practice, the effect might be the opposite. So an example from my own work, uh, looking at discussions about weight loss in general practice, what I did was analyse over 200 recordings of GPs opportunistically offering free referrals to weight management services like Weight Watchers or Slimming World to their patients who were living with obesity but hadn't been attending to seek help for weight loss. And in these sort of situations, guidelines recommend that clinicians should associate the positive value of weight loss with the patient's existing or potential health concern. So something like, you've been here for your arthritis today, and did you know your arthritis in your knees, I know it's really bad, but it will be a lot better if you lost some weight. And that's sort of guideline recommended communication. So I listened to lots of clinicians doing this over and over again, following the guidelines incredibly well, doing their best. And what happened was, almost every time a clinician did this, it was not responded to well in practice, in real life, by the patient. So we do something in conversation analysis called sequence analysis. So we look at sequences and what, what one person says and what the next person says right after. And what, what I could see was that every single time, or almost every single time, a clinician associated weight with health, a patient in their next turn at talk, when it was their turn to respond, would either be upset or angry or begin to justify their positive health behaviours. So say stuff like, well, I do go swimming every day and I eat really healthily. Because this sort of way of topicalizing weight 
implied that the patient's own health behaviours had caused their arthritis, for example, or caused a flare-up in arthritis, even though we know that's not the case. And that's probably, almost definitely, not what clinicians intended with what they were saying. But that's what was happening. Every time, almost every time, weight with health was explicitly linked, patients would respond in a way that showed that they were upset or angry. So these guideline recommended practices in this case was actually not the best way to talk about weight and health. And I was really fortunate that I had the opportunity to contribute to Public Health England guidelines on how to offer weight management referrals. And one of the first things that I said to the group was, okay, I know that currently guidelines say that associating weight with health is a good idea, but I have got a lot of evidence that shows that really this practice doesn't work quite so well, but here's another way of topicalizing weight in a more patient-centered way that is responded to better by patients in practice. And when you see those data and you see those responses, it's incredibly difficult to argue with because you can see real evidence from real interactions that one practice can really um, have a strong positive effect, whilst the other can repeatedly, in the patient's next turn, cause upset or anger. So, so should be best avoided, really. Mm. And I think that, again, shows how useful conversation analysis is by analysing real interaction rather than what people reckon about what maybe works in practice. We can find that the best approaches or, or the best way of communicating might actually be counterintuitive or might be so underused that it takes listening to hundreds of interactions to find this sort of one quite rare practice that actually really should be used more often in practice. And do you think, so I've got a gazillion questions now, and I'll try and keep to like three. I suppose the first one is, do you think the clinicians that you, that took part in your work, do you think they picked up on, with their general kind of clinical nose, the anxiety or upset which their their wording or their conversation may have had on the patient? I think that's such a good point. So in general, and this is where conversation analysis works so well with other methods, we know from interviews and focus groups with GPs or other clinicians that they find these conversations quite uncomfortable. They say that things can go wrong and people can become upset. But what they can't say is what specific bits of the interaction might be causing that in what circumstance. And what we can do with conversation analysis, because we do this very systematic, orderly analysis of, of interaction, is to say, okay, you know, these conversations can go incredibly well. Here's examples of that happening. But those examples of where things don't go quite so well, here are the different areas of the interaction that might be contributing to what, what you're reporting in your interviews and focus group studies. Because we have that ability to say to see what's happening in the moment, there and then. But also, and again, a real strength of conversation analysis is that we have access to both what the clinician and the patient is saying. So we're not just interviewing the clinician in the interaction and finding out what they think is best. We can see both the patient and the clinician's interaction, how those things work. Mm. So it's a more of a balanced perspective rather than just interviewing clinicians, for example, about optimising communication plans. And, this, and the second, we need to, I want to dive into the methods as well, but you sense or you interpreted these emotional reactions within patients based on the data, the, the, the transcription, but also you were 
you weren't there. These are just tra- so so you you were there. So there's an ethnographic part to it. So I suppose all of this is you interpreting mm. an interaction, and then perhaps you could say something about how you're interpreting that by you making a claim that they were they were felt. However, is your interpretation, and I just wonder how that works or how that fits with conversation analysis, that interpretivist position. Yeah. So that's a really interesting point. And and conversation analysis is, I would argue quite strongly, is a non-interpretivist approach. So what we do with conversation analysis is use evidence from inside the interaction. So my evidence for somebody being upset or angry would be, for example, the instances where somebody says to their clinician, look, this makes me quite angry, or where they say, I'm becoming quite upset here, or they display interactional features which show that they're upset, like their voice becoming quite croaky, like it does when we're about to cry. And and one aspect of conversation analysis is that it builds on all this work that has come before us, really detailed work that's, that's still going on in a less applied setting that tells us more broadly about how communication works. And that's what the the really cool thing about it is, is that whatever interactional feature you notice, so if somebody's voice is becoming a bit croaky, there's papers on croaky voice and the role of croaky voice and what it does in interaction. And and one of the things it can do is kind of signal, you know, I'm I'm a bit upset here. So what I saw repeatedly, so could build an evidence base of showing, following this, this association between weight with health, participants showed interactional features which displayed that they became upset. And that is a really key thing because what we don't know is if somebody actually was upset or if somebody actually was angry. Uh, and you might notice conversation and they say stuff like um, this this participant is doing being upset or they're doing being angry or they're doing being resistant. And it doesn't mean that they're doing this like big performance in the interaction. But it, what it does mean is that we can't know, but we can see what they're doing with their talk or their interaction uh, and that's why we describe things and label things that way so this person's doing a question or this person's doing an answer for example we'll label things in a way that shows it's, it's being done and we can see evidence that it's being done but we can't surmise how someone's thinking or feeling in that moment so if you're going to describe or explain conversation analysis to someone that hasn't heard of it at all what would be a somewhat simple explanation of of what it is and what it does. So conversation analysis is an approach to the study of social interaction and communication. It has its origins really in sociology and the sociological study of everyday life, but is used across a huge range of disciplines across the humanities and social sciences by people from all sorts of different disciplinary or methodological backgrounds. And I would say the sort of standout feature of conversation analysis is that analysts use recordings, so video and audio recordings, of naturalistic interaction. So that's unscripted, unelicited, real interactions of real people interacting under the time and other constraints of their particular organisation or their social setting. And what we do as analysts is listen to these recordings and conduct a very fine-grained transcription and then a fine-grained sort of micro-level analysis to find out how interaction works and to sort of uncover the machinery behind interaction. And it's founded on the principle that talk or interaction is systematic and orderly. And because it's systematic and orderly, it can then be the subject of empirical scientific inquiry. 
And that's what we do as conversation analysts is to find out how communication works. What is this machinery of interaction? And in applied settings, so I'm an applied conversation analyst. I then think, okay, I'm learning about this particular interactional setting. I'm learning about um, what can happen under these particular constraints. I'm learning about how and where things can go wrong, how and where things can go smoothly. And based on that learning, I can then make some recommendations for clinicians, for example, on communication or that that machinery behind interaction. So when you've used things like machinery or kind of rests on kind of solid principles, these are kind of ideas which to me seem some, I suppose, add a place, if you like, within qualitative research, which is kind of generally soft and squidgy and nothing is certain there are no kind of strong structures behind these these things are unstable and they're fluid and i suppose you know perhaps you could say something about where or how conversation analysis sits within qualitative research and even looking at some of your papers there are some statistics and odds ratios and and other ca papers too so it's, it's curious because it's most definitely dealing with qualitative data, you know, textual uh, analysis, and the researchers in a room with this interaction, mm-hmm. observing, listening, recording. It all sounds very qualitative, but then there are these underlying premises and kind of theory which seem to kind of drape it in some quantitative positivist notions. Yeah. So conversation analysis sort of sits in this sort of liminal zone essentially but i would say firstly that in general the analyst won't be present during data collection oh, right, okay. so um we might leave a video recorder in a room uh that's turned on and with permission the, the participants there know that that's recording um or we'll ask people to tape record or, or not tape anymore but we'll ask people to digitally record a conversation so as analysts it, it would be incredibly rare that we are there okay when the conversations themselves are occurring and why is that why is that? Why aren't you there? Because we're looking at this this naturally occurring interaction. And and if you've got an analyst there in the room, suddenly it's, it's naturally occurring, but it's, it's not the setting that we set out to analyse because we're suddenly analysing instead of research setting. We're analysing an analyst or, or the data we would capture would be an analyst capturing data rather than this, this conversation happening naturally. So we'll see that more kind of foundational conversation analytic work is phone calls, uh, lots mainly phone calls uh, between friends, between communities where they had a recording device in their phone. Again, of course, they knew about it without the analyst present, but the analyst could collect the recordings afterwards. And that's a tradition we strongly continue because if we think about ethnography, the ethnography is there. And so much of what we do at the beginning of ethnography is kind of people getting used to us demonstrating that we're a legitimate person, that we're trustworthy, that we're all of these things. And in conversation analysis, we quite simply don't need to do that because we're not there. Uh, And the recording device is there, but we are elsewhere and we'll listen to the recording at a later date. And so when you said about the emergence from sociology from the 60s tied to that kind of scientific method or making this this interpretation of text sciency maybe take us that way 
So conversational analysis sort of came out of the work of Harvey Sachs and Emmanuel Shegloff, who were both students of Irving Goffman uh, and Gail Jefferson in the 60s. And what it was really was this critical response to standard sociological approaches at the time that works sort of with these grand hypothetical theories. And it's a strong reaction against this type of research, a paradigm shift essentially that broke the rules of what sociology was and what sociology could do. And it starts rather than with theory, it starts with data. It's such a data-driven method. And whilst earlier researchers were sort of using these observational methods like ethnography and relying on field notes, Sachs was using an audio recorder to capture and uncover the machinery behind interaction. Uh, And Sachs said that the idea is to take these singular sequences of conversation and tear them apart in such a way as to find the rules and the techniques and the procedures the methods and maxims which can be used to generate the orderly features which we find in the conversations we examine. And if we used any other method, we couldn't get to those nuts and bolts of what's happening in conversation because anything else would be limited by recall or social desirability biases. Mm -hmm. So the best way to know what happens in the here and now of a conversation is to have a recording of the here and now so we know what actually happened at the time. So it sounds very much how you described the shift away from kind of testing these grand theories to start with data. It sounds very much like grounded theory, which started, you know, emerged around the same time, the 60s, and with Laser and Strauss responded to that tradition of qualitative research or sociological research, largely just using the grand theories or using research to test those theories rather than generating new kind of micro theories based on data or grounded in data. So it's curious, and I don't know, my sociological history isn't isn't at all developed, but mm-hmm. how those the two those two methodologies or methods emerged around the same time with a similar ignition to to change this the status quo of just testing grand theories and generating new substantive micro theories. Grounded theory it has a particular outcome, which is to generate theory, and maybe like you said, CA isn't necessarily can hell bent on developing a theory about an interaction it may not be so abstract as that so when you're talking about nuts and bolts maybe there is something more granular about it than generating something more formal or or kind of more abstract yes but also no so so the core differences between the two is that the types of data that we look at are very different and our endpoints are also very different so we would not be seeking to sort of generate new theories about how the world works with conversation analysis rather we're seeking to uncover what is happening within a particular interaction and the core thing is that what we see in one interaction is locally produced by the interlocutors in that particular interaction Um, And some of what we learn from conversation analysis uh, is about how conversation in general works. So how these stable patterns of communication unfold, for example, how questions work or how answers are delivered or what responses are relevant to questions. And that tells us more about how interaction works and those kind of fine grained nuts and bolts, that sort of forensic level of interaction and how we build conversation through questions and answers and responses and requests. And in an applied setting, we use that knowledge generated from conversation analysis of how interaction works and apply that to find out more about interaction in specific institutional settings, like in medical interactions. So what we learn from how clinicians communicate COVID risk, for example, 
might be transferable to how to communicate cardiovascular risk, but it also might not. And we don't know. And the way to find out is to listen to examples of both types of risk communication happening and see if, if what we're learning in, in one situation is transferable to another or not. And particularly when we do conversation analysis in institutional settings, we do need to research each particular thing separately. So often someone will say, oh, you've done this, this risk communication about, about CVD risk. So just map what you know onto um, COVID risk or, or risk of not adhering to anti-malarials, for example. But with conversation analysis, we're, we're very explicit that what we know might be transferable, but it might not be transferable. We can't, from listening to one type of interaction, then advise clinicians, for example, on how to communicate in a similar but different interaction in a different setting, in a different context. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I think that's, that's what's common amongst them is they take a particular interest in data, but what arises from that is quite different. Yeah. And are there meta syntheses of conversation analyst studies so where people pull and is there some meta-analysis of that like there is with qualitative syntheses or even a systematic view or a narrative review yes they're very rare but i think they are incredibly useful so i led a qualitative systematic review and thematic synthesis of conversation analysis work around um, behavior change communication in various different settings and what we found was there was a series of stable practices used consistently across all these different settings. It was brilliant to uncover them and see repeatedly, um, you know, conversation analysis has this thing of order at all points. And we could just see it happening all the time, this very orderly way of communicating coming up again and again. But what we could do with the, the, the thematic metasynthesis was sort of overview of all the different practices, break it down to show where each practice was used, when it was used, how it was used. And importantly, how practices were responded to locally by patients in that particular setting. And I think these are so useful for clinicians in particular, because conversation analysis has a certain way of doing things and a certain way of presenting things where we present these transcripts that show how talk is delivered. I can understand that it might be a bit tricky if you're presented with a conversation analysis paper to see all these kind of unusual transcripts and sort of wade through those to get to the really kind of crux of, of what the conclusions are. And those transcripts are necessary to show the analysis, the analytic process, and to be a visual representation of the data. So they're wholeheartedly necessary and absolutely brilliant and a really foundational aspect of conversation analysis. But in the synthesis or, or thematic synthesis, we're able to talk to a slightly different audience uh, and orient clinicians to those original papers, but also aggregate them, highlighting kind of core recommendations for practice, like we would do with, with a, quality, a thematic systematic review or, or, or a statistical systematic yeah. review. So we're going to dive in, or we're going to get to the Jefferson transcription approach or method, because it it's it's intriguing. It looks a bit like if I give my six-year-old my iPhone and ask them to write down a shopping list, it looks they look like that because it's just, it's completely different to a, a verbatim transcript. But just coming back to the the kind of systematic review or synthesis of CA type studies or CA studies, what does CA say about? So you said that there are these underlying kind of principles and practices and st stability around language. Or around conversation, not language. 
what does it say about the cultural differences? So let's say within your systematic review, there's a, a study looking at conversation with clinicians and patients in Brazil, and there's one in the UK, one in the US. Isn't the conversation shaped or underpinned by those cultural norms and values and how how stable are they? Are the case they're just stable nationally or they're stable globally or or mankind? <laughs> that's such a good point. And I guess that's why we're talking about checking to see how transferable things are. So rather than making these sweeping statements, like I noticed this one thing in this interaction, so it must be relevant everywhere, well, we always check to look at how transferable things are and research each setting differently. But there have been some really neat cross-linguistic studies to look at uh, certain kind of foundational things about how conversation works. And one study was, was just so interesting, which I'll share with you, about pauses in interaction. So pauses indicate dispreference. And this doesn't mean personal dispreference. It means conversationally, a dispreferred response might be coming next. So that means like if if you say, do you want to go for a walk? And I go, yes. And like, you know, immediately we can tell that that, that that's quite an enthusiastic yes. But if you say, do you want to go for a walk? <sighs> no. We can sort of hear that a nose on the way because we had that pause. So pauses indicate that that potentially they indicate many things, but one of the things they indicate is potentially a dispreferred response is coming next. And we know this happens. Uh, and this really neat study from Tanya Stivers looked at pauses across lots of different um, lots of different languages, and showed that this practice was in, in, incredibly stable. So pauses indicated dispreference in loads of languages, but it wasn't the presence or absence of a pause; it was the length of a pause that differed. So this stable communication pattern was shown to be consistent, but it was how it was used or the length of a pause in in this particular. Um, study that differed uh, according to different languages. And I think that's a really neat example of of checking, uh, looking at things that might be transferable and studying language and how it works across across different languages to see which of these practices and principles are stable beyond uh, our own language. So I think, so let's think about the the data and the analysis. And so we've got, so thinking about the pause, for example, so as a, as a conversation analyst, a pause is something which you're particularly interested in and infer some kind of meaning or significance. And as a non-conversation analyst, grounded theorist, whatever, I and I'm listening to a conversation, I'll notice the pause. I won't transcribe it. There won't be some funky little symbol. Mm-hmm. But I suppose as a as a researcher, I might think, hmm, that person seemed upset or unhappy or there was a pause or whatever it might be. I might write a memo about that. So that pause indicates something to me and it gives some kind of shape or color to the to the transcript mm-hmm. and it might feature in my interpretation and analysis and write up but in conversation analysis like you said it's the nuts and bolts at the pauses and all the other kind of micro granular detail perhaps just say give us a sense of what you're interested in during the analysis, what kind of things, what kind of analytical thinking takes place? Yeah. So as you said, pauses are, you know, essential. One of those things that we look at is the timing of, of things, but also sequence. And I think that's kind of 
one of the core things where conversation analysis differs from, from other methods that might claim to do similar things is that we look at the order in which things happen hmm. and show that order is really important. And again, a bit like how you said, well, I know as an analyst that pauses might might indicate something's happening there. We all interact every day, right? We we interact in a, in a range of different ways. We're expert interactors. So what we do with conversation analysis is formalise lots of those things we already know and learn new things as well as we go. So a great example of sequence analysis being important or, or a useful thing to study is thinking just about greetings, for example. So when we start interactions, like when we started our interactions today, you do a greeting. Um, if a greeting came at the end of an interaction, would be a bit weird, maybe cause a bit of conversational bumpiness. Or if a greeting suddenly came in the middle of an interaction, a bit mm. weird, cause a bit of conversational bumpiness. So we know sequence is important. Certain That's a technical things, term, is it? Bumpiness. <laughs> Uh, it is yeah or or troubles we'd say conversational troubles okay. <laughs> so so we know that sequence and the order in which we deliver things in is really important because we we, we tend to greet at the beginning of a of a conversation right and when we know sequence is important and begin to uncover how sequences work we can see that we can learn a lot about how to better organize clinical interactions for example um, so sequence is a really key thing. Our recent study of smoking cessation analysis really highlighted sequence organisation as, as a core thing. So I worked um, in a trial called the MASK trial that was uh, led by Dr. Rachna Beg. And in the trial, the aim was to find out what would happen if uh, GPs or other primary healthcare professionals offered people with long-term smoking-related illness an e-cigarette to help reduce the harms of smoking with the name of cutting down the total amount of cigarettes that they were smoking. This is people who didn't want to quit. And my role in the trial was, was to be a conversation analyst and find out how these offers of a free e-cigarette were being made and what we could learn maybe to advise clinicians in future if they were going to go ahead and do this. And what I found was that most clinicians started the interaction by offering the e-cigarette at the start so saying, oh, would you like an e a free e-cigarette today? And then the patient would respond and say something like, oh, I've tried it before. She didn't like it. With too many chemicals in it. Then the clinician would respond again, trying to alleviate some concerns that they had. But that response was rarely tailored to the patient's concerns. And it would normally be something like, oh, but it's really good and it's free because it's a trial. Uh, and they would carry on. And this sequence, when rejection of the free e-cigarette occurred, it always occurred when that sequence was used but it was used really commonly. I noticed a second sequence that was used far more rarely, where clinicians started not with an offer, but with a perspective elicitation. So finding out something like, how do you feel about e-cigarettes? And then patients would respond about how they felt. Clinicians would alleviate any concerns. So if somebody said, oh, I'm a bit worried about all the chemicals, they say, well, don't worry. Let me tell you more about the chemicals. Here's a leaflet. Let's talk about it together and sort of address all these concerns about e-cigarettes together, then offer the free e-cigarettes after those concerns have been elicited and addressed. And every time that sequence was used, patients went ahead and accepted the free e-cigarette. So even though the same actions were done, and action is another core part of conversation analysis. So you'll notice I didn't really focus on the word choice. I was telling you action like an offer or a perspective elicitation. So those actions were being done in, in both sequences, but in a slightly different way. And what I was able to do by listening to hundreds of these was to say, okay, this one where you start with an offer was used most commonly. 
But if you use this other one that was used a bit less often, actually it's much more likely to result in acceptance because patients have the opportunity to share their concerns, address them with the clinician. And we can see that in general, this machine of the interaction that's happening, once concerns are addressed and an offer is made, people accept. So it's a really useful tool and I think quite underused in other methods looking at how sequences are organised um, because we know things work well in particular parts of a sequence and by analysing data we can see where those things work well or where they should be placed. And so using that I suppose as, as an example, as a current example, so you audio recorded that interaction, that consultation, you went in the room, there was a uh, uh, I want to say tape recorder. We haven't used tape for 50 years. <laughs> An audio recorder, digital recorder. And that was placed between the patient and the clinicians. Not, It wasn't hidden away. It was very much on, on view. Uh, yes. So um, particularly for, you know, for ethical reasons, important yeah. that, that people remember they're being recorded. Um, but yeah, that recorder was on, on the clinician's desk during the interaction. So the clinician presses play or presses record rather. It's not that you go in the room, press record, run out. No, no so the clinician actually presses record. In, in this particular instance, yeah. the clinician press record at the beginning of the day and they were only seeing patients who had consented to recording uh, and were taking part in the trial. Okay. So that tape recording or, or digital recording just carried on recording uh, throughout the day. And there was a researcher obviously reminding people before they went in to see their clinician that they previously consented to recording, checking consent before they went in uh, and had a chat. And so you were, you're not in the room because you wanted to be as naturalistic as possible, mm-hmm. but there's something called a recorder in the room and both people know that there's a recorder. So how do you address that? So you would then say, well, there's not you're not in the room, but there's a device which is, you know, the, thinking about the Hawthorne effect, which we spoke about in the ethnography episode, that that's another thing that might change people's interaction and behaviour. Yeah, are you reviewer two, Oliver? This is this is reviewer two's. I think they re- revealed yourself. It's like reviewer two's most common question. It's always, but it's not natural because there's a recorder in the room. Um, my colleague Helena Webb, who is a senior researcher at the University of Oxford, has a really neat example of this of this in practice. Because because we can say as many times as you like. Actually, you know what? You just get used to it, and you sort of it's very different having a little recorder there than it is unless sat there scribbling notes. Um, And she's got a brilliant example from her optometry consultations uh, where there was a a camera in the room of actually the optometrist turning around, typing at their computer um, and the patient behind her sort of uh, readjust, standing up and sort of readjusting his trousers. Uh, And I think we can say as many times as we want, you know, people get used to it uh, and you sort of know it's there, but you're not adjusting your behaviour too much. But that was such a nice example to show that person knew they were being recorded, they consented to recording, but weren't, you know, weren't wasn't feeling sort of inhibited to to change these sort of micro behaviours, which are the type of things that we're we're analysing. And do you think you'd get? Let's just say you could be invisible, and ethically that was acceptable. Do you think, as a conversation analyst, you would pick up more? So do you think, you know, let's just say you could have a kind of some kind of you know video recording, no one knew. Do you think you would pick up stuff, some visual cues or some visual observational data, which would facilitate your conversation analysis? Such a good question. And I, I would say no, because the, the main point of, of conversation analysis is to look at the member's orientation. So how are the parties in the interaction 
picking up on each other's cues, responding to each other and collaborating to, to con construct this conversation. Um, so if I was there, I might have access to information or something that those parties didn't have access to. Uh, so be over-interpreting, for example. But by being able to record and watch and re-watch and analyse what's happening, the, the core thing is to look at how those members are working together to construct the interaction. It doesn't matter what I think. A really neat example, I guess, is of a question. So you can ask someone a question, uh, how are you doing? Sounds like a question. Recognise it as being a question. But if the other party in the interaction doesn't respond to it as a question and does something completely different, then we know that's not that's that's not been a question in that context. It's not it's not had its full questionness mm -hmm. realised. So um so it doesn't really matter what I think. It matters what that person thinks. And something had happened in the interaction where they've either chosen not to respond to the question or the question's been delivered in such a way that they can't recognise it as a question. And that's what matters, not what I think, or if I'm invisible or a superhero. And I don't think invisible would be the superhero power that I would choose. <laughs> I don't know what it would be, but I think for my role as a conversation analyst, it wouldn't be quite as useful as maybe maybe one would think. Okay, so the recording's taking place. It's recording all day, except for those that choose not to take part. Then the recording gets to you. And then what do you do? So the first thing I would do when I get recordings is go ahead and transcribe them. And I would use one of the transcription conventions in conversation analysis. So the foundational one and the most commonly used one uh, is the Jeffersonian transcription system. But there are other ones that can capture different elements of interaction. So I would start, I would listen, I would read, I would listen again, listen again and transcribe. Uh, and each kind of sentence or turn at talk. So every time we achieve something that's complete in grammar, action and prosody, that's that's a turn at talk. I would transcribe and, and might take minutes or hours to transcribe a very brief interaction because we're capturing not just what it said, what is said, but how in micro detail people are saying it. So we look at speed. So is this bit of talk, is this word, are these two words faster or slower than the surrounding words? Are they quieter or louder? Where's the inflection in this word? Are people punching up or going down? We'd also look at turn final intonation, which is really key. So at the end of a turn, is somebody sounding like they're going to carry on talking and take another turn? Or is somebody stopped and indicated they finished? All of those things are so important to capture because we can then begin to understand when one turn is over, why somebody else is talking next or when it's relevant for them to talk. We also capture overlap, so where people are overlapping, because often a miscommunication that we notice later in an in interaction might be because people were talking in overlap a bit earlier and didn't quite hear what their conversational partner was saying. So these sort of very micro level things are really important. And I've got a bit of an example that I need you to collaborate with me to do. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like you to read this out for everyone at home. Could you read out what this says? So it says, I didn't call him. Okay. Um, so could it say something else if you sort of changed your emphasis? I didn't call him. Okay. Another one? I didn't call him. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you could have, I didn't call him, like I called somebody else. Or I didn't call him, you called him. Um, or I didn't call yeah. him, I shouted to him across the room because he was somewhere else. So like these four words, which were, I didn't call him, 
can have like multiple different interpretations. And you added a pause to yours. Um, we did all sorts of things to, to change the meaning of that. And with a verbatim transcription, we as analysts sort of lose that original meaning or the, the way things were originally delivered. So with Jeffersonian transcription, we can capture all mm. of those things. And we use the transcription alongside the recordings, which we continue to listen to as a visual representation of what that talk sounds like. And it avoids things like, I didn't call him becoming, I didn't call him, or I didn't call him, um, because we can see on the transcript where those emphases and inflections are. It's fascinating. I think um, actually, I think what's is similar across all the qualitative work is just that immersion that you're just listening and thinking and transcribing and you're still, you know, you as the researcher, you're the analytical instrument, aren't you? There is, there's no other kind of machine yeah. or SPSS that does it for you. So, so you're, you're very much in immersed or endeavoured to become immersed in the, yeah. in the data. Yeah, I would completely agree. And we don't tend to use the word immersed so much in conversational analysis. If I was doing a thematic analysis, for example, I would say to colleagues offering me tea or coffee, like, go away, I'm immersed in my data. <laughs> but with conversation analysis, I rather than think of it as me personally, and I guess it's to do with this sort of co-construction thing, rather than think it was me personally being immersed in my data, I think of it as having sort of my analysis hat on and just being mm. completely focused on that nuts and bolts of machinery of what's happening. Why this now? Why is this thing happening next? What caused this other thing to happen? So it's a very different type of, of being into your data. With thematic analysis, I'll, I'll kind of feel it and I'll be there with them and remembering the interviews that I did. But with conversation analysis, it's this much more systematic process of working through things step by step to see these stable and orderly patterns of communication unfold. I want to say, do you, do you try and be detached even objective do you try and look upon this or listen upon or look upon this data it seems like because you describe it as a very visual thing like these the particular way of transcription with particular symbol signs and various kind of textual a very particular way of expressing this data and you'll focus on looking at it as well as listening to it but but it seems somewhat detached and you kind of Mm-hmm. rejected or resisted the idea of being immersed or it didn't really fit so well but again what is your position is it one of viewing the data from outside rather than co-constructing and you know building this data with that interaction with the data yeah so i think that again is a really kind of thing that marks ca out against other qualitative methods where where we might co-construct data in the analysis process or in the data collection process is that that I would argue that we're not co-constructing data in conversation analysis. We use a process called unmotivated looking when we start analysis. And that doesn't mean that we're not like motivated researchers that enjoy our jobs. But what it does mean that we don't go into the data with a priori assumptions about what we'll find or carrying our thoughts and feelings about a particular topic with us. We just look at the data and begin to unpick this machinery. So uh, what happens in the first turn at talk, and then the next turn at talk, and then the next one? And what are the components of that turn? And how is it built? And what's a relevant response as we go through? And with more topic-focused research methods, so we might be looking at how people think or feel about a certain situation, 
maybe in a thematic analysis, for example, we have thoughts and feelings about that particular situation that we bring with us and we brought with us when we asked the questions and we brought with us when we're doing the analysis. And that's a core feature of thematic analysis. And one of the real strengths of reflexive thematic analysis is that we as a researcher acknowledge all those things that we brought with us uh, and how we co-constructed the data. But in conversation analysis, because we're not engaging with thoughts or feelings, we're looking at this mechanics behind the interaction, and we can't access thoughts or feelings. We can access what people are displaying. People might be displaying being positive or displaying being negative um, or doing a question or doing an answer. We're not working to interpret things in the way that we are with thematic analysis, for example, or in grounded theory. And because of that, we don't use or we're less explicit about our use of reflexivity, for example. So if I was doing a thematic analysis, I'd be taking my reflexivity journal, making my notes, considering at each stage why I asked a question, what I was thinking, what I was feeling that day. But in conversation analysis, we don't do reflexivity in the same way. And it's much more, if we think about how we do data quantitatively, I guess, we're still an analyst, we're still interpreting mm. things, we're still an analyst driving things. But the method itself is not interpretivist. And the same with conversation analysis is not an interpretivist approach. We're not bringing ourselves to analysis any more than we would if we were doing a quantitative analysis with the caveat that we still exist in the world and we're still an active agent doing doing the analysis with, with our own sort of stuff around that. So do you keep a, a, even a diary or just do you note down, do you feel that, I mean, I suppose that I get that you you don't engage in reflexivity in a more kind of formal way memos but when you're listening to the audio recording you're going to have a thought and a feeling is do you are you able to i suppose the phenomenologists would say they bracket it or they just park it do you what do you do with it it pops into your head you can't like try to get rid of it but it's still there and the more you think <laughs> about it the more it's there so i suppose how do you manage that manage those emotional reactions to data yeah, so personally, I'm sure so all conversation analysts do it different different ways. And it, it probably depends on their the tradition that they came from. So conversation analysis draws on all these different traditions from sociology to psychology to linguistics to anthropology. And, and all of us train in these different ways. So I, I trained in anthropology. I, I use other research methods and I really see reflexivity as a, as a strength of other methods. So I'm used to taking notes. So when I do conversation analysis, I do take notes. But my personal thoughts and feelings are just less important because I can't lead the analysis with my thoughts and feelings the same way that I might in another method. Uh, and that's kind of a key marker, I guess, of conversation analysis is this way that we do things. Um, so I could be, I don't know, a social constructivist and you could be a positivist and, and I could be really experienced at, you know, analysing GP interactions and you could have never been to a GP in your whole life. But if we looked at the same bit of data, the important thing is that we would see the same things there because we're looking at the mechanics, not drawing on what we think or feel or our own experiences of an interaction. We would see that this question produced an answer or this this type of question produced another question in response. So those are the type of things that we would notice. And it doesn't matter that I've seen my GP 50 million times and you've never seen a GP. We can recognise that stable pattern happening and talk. Uh, so whilst it's really fun, I think, to think about these and important as methodologists to think about these kind of 
broader practices. The wonderful thing about conversation analysis is that it doesn't matter what your ontological position is or your epistemological position or what kind of methodological training that you've had. Once you know how to do conversation analysis, we all see the same things in the data. And we have this thing called data sessions, which again, I think are quite unique to conversation analysis, where we all get together uh, and they happen all over the country. Uh, people all get together, share data and discuss it. So we'll play play the recording, look at the transcript together and discuss what we see happening uh, and discuss the evidence for why we think that. So I think this person has done a question because in the next term, the participant responds with an answer targeting information that they received in the previous term. So we'll we'll look at look at these data, describe what we're seeing, and it's very rare that someone will say, "Oh no, I completely disagree with you," because we're looking at these mechanics and and we're uncovering what's happening and and seeing these very stable things. And it doesn't really matter your your kind of philosophy for for science; you can see these things stably occurring. And is that the case in a single study? That will you will you check your analysis with a colleague, or is there some interrater kind of reliability? thing that's done or is it just just you how does that how does the quality kind of quality checks come into the, the analysis yeah so no interrater reliability and no checking per se but i think you know what i said earlier is conversation analysis builds consistency on this consistently on this large body of work that has already happens with a cumulative process of learning more and more with each study. And we each of us contribute to, to what's what's happened before and, and then lay something out for someone else to, to build on next time. So it's cumulative. And we all know different areas of this large body of research. So, so one role of data sessions is that we can find out knowledge for other people that know things we don't know. So I'm quite good at response cries, things like, oh, and ah, oh, I can tell you all the literature about them, tell you where they're used, how they're used, what position they occur in, uh, how people respond in different different situations, different settings, and um, yeah, all the literature around it. But because I know a lot about response cries, I don't know everything about I don't know, question design, for example, question formatting, but someone else would have read all of that literature, which is great. So when you get together at a data session, people can share this different knowledge that they've developed with the different areas of speciality to make sure that you're not 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 missing stuff, but to add richness to, to your analysis. Um, and I was at a data session once when I a clinician had gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, gosh, I'm sure that is really important that a patient said something, they've gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, what what work could this be doing? Looking what happened next, what happened before? Uh, and one of my colleagues at the data session was like, oh, it's a brilliant paper on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. I'll just email it over to you. And I could see this paper where someone had an- analysed just hundreds of interactions before about, yeah, 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 and where it's used and how it's used and the effect they can have in an interaction. So that is kind of a key area of quality is working together, going to data sessions and learning from each other. And another area, I guess, to show or demonstrate uh, what we've done is the way that we present results in conversation analysis. So I said before that we present these transcripts, which are incredibly detailed, but incredibly important. And just because I'm communicating to clinicians who don't know how to read the transcript doesn't mean that I'm not going to show these detailed transcripts. I might explain them in a more detailed way or, or a clearer way. Um, so that people unfamiliar can, can understand what I did. But we show the transcripts so that people can see the data that I'm talking about. And if I'm making an analytic claim they don't agree with, they can say, well, you've said 
that the patient indicated dyspreference here, but I don't see any evidence in their turn or the prior turn that a dyspreferred response was produced. Uh, and that's kind of a key part of conversation. Analysis is showing what we've done. Uh, we don't show quotes with like dot, dot, dots with bit, bits missing. We show the bit of talk that we, we want to show people in our, you know, our readership. And we'll show the context before and after quite chunky, often like I'm gesturing to people at home to show how long our uh, quotes are, but you can't uh, see my gestures. So we'll show... About three inches. Yeah. <laughs> we'll show quite chunky quotes, uh, which we call excerpts, because they're, they're excerpts really rather than a snippet of what's happening, to show the context around an interaction, where it occurs in a sequence uh, and how it's delivered. And that was a key part of what Sachs kind of encouraged people to do. He said you could... By presenting things in this way, others can look at what we've done, uh, and if they want to, they can disagree with us. It makes it very explicit, the decisions that we made, why we made them, and the particular bit of data that we're talking about. So again, showing this kind of very detailed transcript and mm. talking through our analysis below the transcript. So we refer to line numbers. So we'll say, for example, in transcript one, in excerpt one, on line seven, the participant starts talking about x and then we'll, we'll go through all the, and describe each line each turn of talk what's happening or, or our analytic interpretation of what's happening to make it very clear and explicit the decisions we made so if people want to they can disagree with us or disagree with what we're saying about the data one thing i didn't ask related to that is that let's say the half an hour consultation with the patient and the clinician do you transcribe all of that or just the, the salient parts which are pertinent to your research question or or the study aims? That's such a good question. And the answer is that the gold standard is to, to have as much access to as much of the data as possible. So the gold standard would be to have the whole interaction, the whole consultation, for example. Sometimes, so in, in my recent project, because of uh, how ethics approval system works i only was allowed ethics to analyze the particular research question i was answering so in in my project about covid risk communication i'm only allowed to keep the parts of the interaction that are about communicating about covid risk and i have to delete the rest of the interaction and it might be that i miss things because i've done that so in some instances participants will say oh you know i was saying earlier about this thing or i told you earlier about that didn't i so I missed those bits where they, they said things earlier, or uh, maybe I missed if they had a really good laugh earlier and now we're in a really positive, we're having a really kind of smooth running conversation because we've got this brilliant affiliative section earlier in, in the consultation. But because of the nature of this particular study, it wasn't practical or feasible to get access to the full consultations. But the gold standard really, and what I try to do in all my work, is to access as much as people are comfortable with, as much of the cons consultation as possible. So what kind of questions does CA seek to address? What sort of research questions does CA look to answer? So conversation analysis looks to answer questions about how things actually work in practice. And I think this is a common misconception with, with the approach, actually, is that people think it's a bit like thematic analysis, where we're looking at how people think or feel in, in an interaction. But we can't access that. We don't know how people are thinking or feeling. And it's not an appropriate method to access those types of things. So we look at what's being accomplished in an interaction, how things are achieved by participants, and maybe what the interactional challenges or dilemmas are in a given situation, and how parties work together to address or solve those challenges or dilemmas. 
in an applied setting. So I, I tend to work with the overall aim of developing guidelines or training for clinicians. Um, I tend to also answer research questions about how things might be done or, or how can we optimise communication in this setting. And that's not through hypothesising or asking people how could communication be better in, in, a, in a world that is um, ideal. It's by looking at people interacting under the real time constraints of their organisation and seeing what can be done and what can be achieved and how troubles can be overcome together or how when we see a conversation that runs very smoothly, our patients respond well and clinicians are responding well, how is that achieved and how, how can we, what can we learn uh, and draw from that or what practices can we highlight for other clinicians in similar situations? I suppose coming back to the features, I and mean, this is why CA is so interesting because it has features of, as I said, characteristics of qualitative research. There's a textual component. There's a, a focus on social interaction and relationships. I know you're not looking at relationships, but there's a relationship there. and it's. But then there's this element to it, which, as we've kind of talked about, which seems quantitative and positivist and this notion of being a bit detached and objective. And, and that comes through in some of the analysis. And I mentioned your work that there's some statistics with, within, yes. within the paper. And so in terms of the analysis, what is the, the quantification of the frequency of terms and length of pauses or the more numerical side of the analysis? How does that fit into conversation analysis? Yeah, that's that's such a good question. And and there's there's lots of sort of work and scholarship around quantification and conversation analysis. And some people even argue that conversation analysis isn't a qualitative method because it's not interpretivist, because it it could be argued that it has a more positivist approach. People will say that even if we're not quantifying, it's still not qualitative. So sort of from my perspective, if we think about a kind of a continuum and we have positivism on one side and interpretivism on the other, maybe conversation analysis is in the middle kind of halfway, neither one nor the other in this sort of liminal space. But mm. it works well, like most qualitative methods, it works well with other research methods as well, either other qualitative methods or other quantitative methods. And what conversation analysis or conversation analysts are very explicit about is what we can and can't do with conversation analysis. So what we can do is uncover this machinery behind the talk or, or see what's being accomplished. What we can't do is is find out what people are thinking or feeling. And I think one of the strengths of conversation analysis is that being that explicit about what we can do. Like one method can't do everything. And, and this particular method is really shines at looking at social interaction and how, how those things work. And it works well with qualitative methods, maybe interview studies or thematic analysis studies that might be looking more about um, experiences and how people feel about experiences because it's a, it's a snapshot of a moment in time we can see interaction happening and maybe could be complemented with interviews to find out uh, more about thoughts and feelings or reported thoughts and feelings. And it can also be used with quantitative methods. And I tend to use it with both. Um, and I think, again, a, another kind of misconception about conversation analysis, and this might be another reason why people might be a bit reticent to use it, is people think that quantification is all about word choice and how many words occurred in this, this particular situation. But that's not the case at all. And I said before that sequence was this core feature of conversation analysis. So the order things happen in, their placement in, a, in an interaction is really important. And if we're quantifying something, we tend to work at a quantification of something happening in a particular sequential 
placement. And as I said, there's loads of different ways to quantify things we might be looking at, at pauses in response to a certain type of action, for example. So the pauses in that sequential placement. And I think a nice illustration is a study that I did of clinicians recommending free referrals to Weight Watchers or, or Slimming World to, to people living with obesity. And I was interested in patient responses to the offer. So I got, I got all my data and I mapped the interaction to see what was happening. One of the actions, because we said actions was a cool thing about, about conversation analysis as well. One of the actions was an offer. And following the offer, there was a response from patients. And we tend to be, in conversation analysis, a bit less interested in words and more interested in the action those words are doing. So in this particular sequential placement, the, my response to an offer, I wanted to quantify what was happening to see if there were any longer term associations with patient behaviours. So we had our offer, would you like to go to Weight Watchers or Slimming World? Sometimes people said yes, sometimes they said yeah, sometimes they're like, oh yes, or sometimes they're like, fabulous, I'd love to go. Sometimes it was no or definitely not. So what I did, drawing on the existing conversation analysis literature of actions in their sequential context, I grouped those responses. So no and definitely not are called actual rejections because they're rejecting the offer and doing the same action together. So group those. Uh, then I had lots of absolutely fabulous, wonderful, group those together as a marked positive response because they were going over and above, yes, markedly showing or displaying a positive response. Then I had a yeah. And a yeah, we know interactionally might not do agreement quite as much as we maybe think that it would do. And I know that from reading all this previous work around yeah and, and what yeah does in particular sequential placement. So I had yeah on its own. I had yes. And then I had a response where I had oh. So I had so I had oh. And then I quantified those things. So I counted up how many O's, how many actual rejections. So the action rather than the rather than the words, how many um, mark positive stance. And then all in this sequential placement. So in response to this offer, so this particular part of the interaction. And qualitatively, I had to justify why that was my quantification point. So why did I choose this point to quantify? And I chose it because I'd done a really detailed conversation analysis of what was happening in the interaction. And I found that this response to the offer was sort of the key point where patients first asserted a stance towards the acceptability of the offer. And the stance that they showed in that placement was consistent. So nobody said no and then said yes later. And nobody said yes and then said no later. So they maintained this initial stance that was asserted. So I had good conversation analytic evidence that this response point was an appropriate place to quantify. So I compared it with my long-term patient data, which I'd previously been blinded to. And what I found was that in line with the conversation analytic literature, yeah, wasn't doing agreement at all. Yeah, was acknowledging that someone had spoken, was doing what we call a back channel or a minimal acknowledgement. It was just acknowledging the clinician had spoken. It might have been acting to request more information because sometimes following a yeah, clinicians delivered more information. But what I did find was that when patients said, oh, every single patient that said, oh, went on to agree to their free referral at the end of the consultation. But also all of them, apart from one, I think, went on to actually attend that referral later. The quantification essentially acted to add another layer 
of data showing what I'd concluded from the conversation analysis, which was that Yare displays strong positivity towards this offer. And we can see with this subsequent quantitative data that people who displayed positivity in the interaction also went on to attend. So that's super useful in like interactionally to know that that happens, but also useful for clinicians because mm. from doing my sequential analysis, I could see that after O, clinicians went on to try and sort of convince or persuade people that that attending would be a really good idea. But after a yeah or a yes, they sort of closed the interaction because they, they indicated that they'd understood people had agreed. And actually the opposite was true. So people who said yeah or yes, may have been requesting more information. There wasn't conversational evidence they were actually agreeing because afterwards they would go on to ask more questions before before making a final response at the end. Uh, whereas people said, oh, maintain this really positive response towards the interaction, didn't ask any further questions. Uh, and when the clinician tried to deliver more information about the referral, they oriented to that information as redundant or unnecessary. So we had this strong sort of conversation analytic evidence and this additional quantitative evidence as well, but not done through words or word frequency, but through these actions in their sequential context that was grounded in this very solid micro-level analysis of what was happening throughout those sequences. And so you wouldn't say that's mixed methods. You wouldn't, I mean, it is mixed methods, but it's not mixed methods as a kind of methodology, but you, you know, using two different forms mm. of data, if you like, to converge on some sort of meaning or some finding is very mixed methods-y. Yeah, it is mixed methods-y. And I, I would agree that it's not using sort of mixed methods no. methodology, but it is. So with conversation analysis, we're very explicit what we can and can't do. And what I can see is what's happening or what I can analyse is what's happening in the interaction and how people are responding. But those we don't know that person's thoughts or feelings when they're doing that response. We can see they're displaying positivity or build an argument that they're displaying positivity but we don't know how that might translate to longer term behaviours. Uh, and in this particular research question, we were interested in what would be positively received in an interaction, what would be associated with post-consultation satisfaction scores, and also what may support people to actually, the conversational uh, approaches that may support people to actually attend a referral. Um, so I think because our, our research question was asking questions about inside and outside the consultation, we needed data from mm. inside and outside the consultation to appropriately answer that. So I suppose two final things. One is to suggest or to ask for those that want to learn more about conversation analysis, what, where would they start? Where, where would you suggest that people begin to, because it is so... You know, I guess I'm thinking I can. you can pick up a thematic analysis paper or a grounded theory paper, not necessarily know too much about qualitative research. And it, it's a story, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. a kind of narrative or a kind of meta-narrative based on participants' interviews. But with CA, it seems a bit more difficult to access, maybe, or to get your, one's head around the, the method. Mm -hmm. So what would be a good way of people wanting to find out more? Firstly, I would say that it might be that you think conversation analysis would be incredibly useful, but you don't want to do it yourself. That's absolutely brilliant. What what the kind of group of analysts who use or do conversation analysis have produced is this amazing body of research on all sorts of applied settings in courtrooms and neighbour interactions and phone calls and everyday conversations and all these different clinical interactions in different clinical settings. 
And we can learn so much from those. So I'd say, firstly, it might be you're interested in CA, but you don't want to do it. That's brilliant. But engage with the literature. There is so much out there. Don't be afraid to have a look and maybe do a systematic review of existing conversation analytic studies. If if you're already skilled in thematic synthesis, for example, Um, because there is so much to learn and so much irrelevance Mm -hmm. there for clinicians. Uh, The second thing I would say is if you do want to do conversation analysis, find a friendly mentor. So it's not something, as you were saying, that you can sort of read a book and then be a pro conversation analyst and off off you go. And even when you invited me to come and talk about conversation analysis today, I sort of thought, oh, my goodness, but what am I going to say about conversation analysis? I'm still learning. And I feel that we're all still learning all the time. There is so there's such a large body of work that's being produced. We can't know it all. And we're all on this ongoing process of learning. So for me, having mentors, going to data sessions, um, engaging with the conversation analytic community means I can I can carry on this kind of ongoing learning and find out more. So I, I would advise other people to do just the same. Find a mentor, engage with the community, go to data sessions, go on a training course, even though you won't come out a pro conversation analyst. That's another way to build your community, meet other people in a similar situation, learn the basics. And then from there, you can continue to develop your skills after the training, the kind of formal training has finished. Um, Go to conferences, uh, talk to other people, read the literature, sort of immerse yourself in it. Yeah. And I think even for me, who's a more of an interpretivist qualitative researcher that does interviews, I think, you know, the, the granular detail or the attention that conversation analysts place on the granular kind of, as you said, ordering, sequencing, yeah, 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 croaky voices, you know, that, if nothing, if nothing else, if I don't end up doing CA, it's just, I'm really attuned or alive to that variation and tone and, you know, delivery and all the things that you would be much more formal in your analysis. But as, as a, any quality research, I think just having that attention to to voice and to to language is going to be helpful and is going to enrich whatever form of quality research that you end up doing. Definitely. And I think people are really, um, even though it was traditionally quite an underused method, it's becoming more and more popular. There are, there are training courses for clinicians or training approaches for clinicians now grounded in conversation analysis. So CALM, which is the conversation analytic role play approach, which was um, pioneered by Professor Elizabeth Stokoe, Real Talk, pioneered by Professor Ruth Parry, all of those train clinicians based on examples from real interaction, which makes sense, right? It sort of doesn't make mm. sense that we would train train people with anything that isn't real communication. So it, I think it's brilliant that these training approaches are developing, that policymakers, people developing guidelines, NHS England are all really attuned now to what conversation analysis can offer. And that whilst it's really important to ask people about how they think or feel about a particular interaction, it's also important to understand how interactions work uh, and how interactions can work in particular circumstances and show that we can develop an evidence base of good or best practice based on real interaction rather than reckoning what might be a good idea, which I think is a really positive thing as well. Charlotte, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.